0: This week on Medical Minefield, Sam Webb. I know the effect that numbers and tracking has had on my life. It's prevented many awful situations from materialising, but it's also cost me a lot of my life. If I had a choice not to wear a machine on my skin that checked my blood sugar every four minutes, I'd go for it. And Dr Carr
1: There's a big learning piece for us as clinicians. It's a peek into people's lives, right? Because that's what they're allowing you with those glucose levels. Now, If you're going to use that to judge them, not only that relationship is broken, you're also probably causing harm. Welcome to Medical
2: Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman.
3: And I'm Eve Simmons. And we're
2: health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts, so you don't have to.
3: This week we're asking why there's been a rise in young type 1 diabetics developing eating disorders.
2: As ever, we'd like to know what you think, so if you have a question or a suggestion for us at Medical Minefield, tweet us at MedMinefield. So Eve, tell me what this is all about. For those who don't know, type one diabetes is a type of diabetes. It leads to very high blood sugar. It can develop completely out of the blue. Lots of people have heard of type two diabetes because millions of people have it, and it's related to more related to weight gain and fat in the liver, and it can uh, lead to very high blood sugar, and then that can lead to all kinds of health complications, including heart attacks, etc. If you don't get it under control. With type one diabetes, people often say you're born with it, but that's not quite the case. It's thought to be some kind of an autoimmune disorder that attacks the bit of your body that produces the hormone insulin, which normally controls your blood sugar. You stop being able to control your blood sugar and it gets sky high. And so these people, often it, it develops in childhood, but it can develop in adulthood as well. And uh, former Prime Minister Theresa May, in fact, developed type 1 diabetes as an adult. And, and when you do develop it, no matter what your age is, You're on medication for life, you have to take insulin medication, but it's not as simple as just taking a pill, taking an injection. It requires constant monitoring, you have to constantly measure your blood sugar. And in the olden days, you used to to prick your finger and test it with one of these little devices. But these days... You don't have to prick your finger after every time you eat. There are these these new monitors that you wear; these little patches that are wall on the arm. And they contain technology that communicates with your mobile phone, and it tracks your blood sugar constantly. Uh, so you can keep an eye on it at all times, and if it ever looks like it's going too high, you'd inject a bit more insulin. There are other technologies that the people with type one diabetes have, like there are in, pumps. Yeah, um, so you don't have to
3: inject. You can just you've got the little you just program gizmo it and it, and it, uh, it does it's, it automatically. There's a little kind of tube
2: mm-hmm. that into your body and, and drips the insulin in. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, with the rise of this new technology, we've seen something new.
3: Mm. So I've been speaking to experts from NHS England this week who lead in the diabetes field, and they are noticing that there has been this slight rise in patients who are coming forward with eating disorders. Now, eating disorders are in fact more common in people with type 1 diabetes just because of mm. the sort of the monitoring that you mentioned and the intense focus that you are almost trained to have around food. Because I'd have heard of diabulimia, I think yeah. they called it. Yeah, so with diabulimia, experts have said that that it can be triggered because one of the symptoms of diabetes before you're diagnosed is that you lose quite a lot of weight. And so often what happens is patients kind of feel quite good about themselves because they've mm. been told you look great you've lost loads of weight I've got
2: personal experience with this because mm. my ex mm. uh, developed type 1 diabetes mm. age 29 we were
3: mm. both
2: and he'd always been a stockier guy mm. And he lost unbelievable amount of weight before he was diagnosed. It happened within about two or three weeks. He lost three, four stone. Wow. I mean, really dramatic. My clothes were hanging off him. Terribly worrying. It was yeah. absolutely terrifying. Mm. Yeah. And obviously, he had all the other symptoms of mm. diabetes that you have—the warning signs. So, anyway, he was diagnosed and put on insulin, and he put all the weight back on. It was really annoyed. Well,
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's you know a thing that happens, and especially when young girls are diagnosed. I mean this obviously happens to young men as well, but it's more common in young girls, suddenly they take insulin, they put on quite a lot of weight, well, the weight that they've lost, and they don't like it and they're they're quite keen to get back to the weight they were. And they learn that if they withhold insulin that they lose weight. But obviously this becomes incredibly deadly very quickly, and that is diabulimia. But what experts are seeing now is something that is slightly different. So while I think it's about one in ten Type 1 diabetics develop diabulimia, but around a third will develop some form of disordered eating. Mm. So what's actually more common is what we're seeing more of, which is this idea that in order to control your blood sugar because you become so anxious and worried about eating perfectly and having perfect glycemic control, you decide that it's easier for you to just not eat the foods that make your blood sugar slightly erratic. Mm. And then over time, this kind of need to control what you're eating ends up becoming a full-blown eating disorder.
2: And how does the technology play into that?
3: So, yeah, one of the reasons why experts are saying that they're seeing a rise in this is because now obviously there's all this fancy tech that patients are given. So whereas before you would maybe check your blood sugars every time you needed to, Now, of course, you have a continuous blood glucose monitor. So you are seeing your blood sugars 24 hours a day. You're getting notifications every five minutes if you want. And therefore, it kind of creates this sense of anxiety around what your blood sugars are doing and what you can do to control it.
2: I completely understand that having, (laughs) not to bring it back to me... Um, I have personal excuse. But I I can understand that because I've worn one of these blood sugar Mm. monitors myself during a piece that I was writing. I wore this monitor for about a month Mm. and I completely felt that desire to control. I had a falafel wrap for lunch one time and my blood sugar went really high. And I always thought they were really healthy. And my blood sugar went really high and it took ages to go back down. And just in your mind, you start to think of the high as the bad thing Mm. and this the flat line Mm. as some kind of good thing or some kind of desirable thing. And obviously, the tech is amazing. And there's good evidence to show that in type 1 diabetes, there's much better glycemic control thanks to these monitors. Mm. But... I guess it's an issue they're going to have to really look at, because I had no idea that the the, the amount of disordered eating in, in type 1 diabetics was so
3: high. Well, relatively recently, NICE, so the medical watchdog that set out guidelines for doctors, advised doctors in 2015 to screen for eating disorders in type 1 diabetics, or at least be aware of it. But of course, you know, in practice, things are very busy. And when you're in a clinic that is focused on physical health, at the best of times, people that clued up about eating disorders so in practice a lot of experts are saying that this isn't happening
2: well, before we go any further, this week you've spoken to someone who's been affected by this. Sam Webb is the son of the BBC's Justin Webb, the Today programme presenter. Justin wrote for us when Sam was about eight and first developed type 1 diabetes. He wrote about it to try and help other people understand the condition. And and he's done a hell of a lot over the years to improve awareness and sports charities. And, and Sam likewise has has uh, subsequently written about having type 1 diabetes and managing it he called me the other day and said he wanted to talk about the fact that he'd had treatment for an eating disorder that he developed largely as a result of having type 1 diabetes and constantly monitoring it Mm. sam's 22 now and we've got him on the line
3: sam thank you so much for joining us and for also sharing this very sensitive story of yours would you start off by telling us just how your eating disorder developed and how the type 1 diabetes played into it or contributed?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think it, it all began. I was, I was 16 years old and I decided to take ownership of my diabetes management. I was at that stage in my life where I thought it was, it was necessary to make that transition. My parents were my sole carers and I thought, you know what, it's, it's about time that I take some responsibility. I think that was a felt like a blessing at the time. You know, I was I was taking control of my life. My eating disorder developed, I think, as a consequence of not so much the taking of control, but I think more the acute inability to actually ask for the support that I needed. Because managing type one diabetes, it, it's not the end of the world. It's an inconvenience. But it can wreak havoc if you don't ask for the support. And I was one of the those people that, that just wasn't able to do that. But um, I think it materialised as a result of this absolute obsession with ensuring that my blood sugars were managed within a certain range and numbers played a huge part in that.
3: And when you say managed, do you mean presumably thinking about the lines on the graphs? The, you wanted
0: to keep it kind of as flat as possible? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was about keeping it flat and the graph became my success story. That's how I saw it. You know, I saw every day and you know, I used to go to bed and I used to see my graph and I used to think I might have had a fantastic day, but, but it didn't matter. To me, it was the graph and that's all that counted.
2: When you were looking at these graphs, if you saw your blood sugar level rise, that was your yardstick of, of, of
0: failure, I suppose. Absolutely. High blood sugars were the enemy for me. I couldn't stand going high. There's an idea that diabulimia is a is a pressing concern at the moment, and it, it certainly should be, because there are many who suffer from an acute desire to control their insulin delivery. It was about control. It was about the appearance of control more than anything.
2: What were you doing in practical terms to, to exert that control?
0: I mean, I'd say that like many eating disorders, carby foods became you know, fear foods for me because carbs had an effect on my blood sugar So for example, you know, pastas, pizzas, desserts, fizzy drinks. And at first it was, well, I have, you know, three quarters of a pizza and then it became half and then it became a quarter and then it became no pizza at all. That's when things, things got messy, you know, because you go from believing that actually you can survive with slightly less to actually reaching the realization that there is no such thing as enough with an eating disorder. Did you notice yourself losing weight? I did. I was acutely aware that I was, I was losing weight. You lose some insight with an eating disorder, though, so often, and, and I certainly did, I, I needed someone on the outside to say, look, enough is enough. You, you, you can't do this on your own. But I certainly noticed that um, I was not only fragile physically, but also emotionally. Uh, and they went hand in hand at the time. Did it affect your
2: diabetes? Because I know that people with type one diabetes, because you're injecting insulin or you're having insulin via your pump, that you actually need to have some carbs.
0: My eating disorder told me that if I reduced what I ate, I would have incredible control. Uh, you know, it would be all in line, and I'd, I'd be winning. And the opposite was the, was the case because carbohydrates, as you say, Barney, they're the be all and an end all of a diabetic. You need carbs. Everyone needs carbs. But, um, you know, as a diabetic, without carbs, you you die because your blood sugars will drop to levels that are um, not only dangerous, but deadly.
2: And they, they call those
0: h- hypos, don't yeah, they? Hypo, when when you have, um, yeah, hypoglycemic. Yeah, exactly. And I was having many of those. I was low for most of the day, seven or eight hours of just being low and not being able to treat myself because I was so convinced that any bite of a blueberry or a cherry, you know, was enough to, to send me skywards. And, and that was that, that. Was my my thinking at the time.
2: With hypoglycemia, it affects your thinking, doesn't it? You can become quite befuddled and confused if you get very hy- hypoglycemic. And, and obviously, you can pass out and such like.
0: Yeah, hypos are incredibly dangerous. You know, you can be on your own. When you're on your own with a hypo, awful things can happen. Luckily for me, I was surrounded by incredibly caring friends and family who, who supported me through those difficult times. But I've had many moments where I've, you know, woken up from a particularly awful hypo during my worst phase of, of the illness. And I have thought, wow, is this what an, a near death experience feels like? You know, I always say to myself, I'm lucky to feel alive. But after those, you know, intense moments, I can honestly say I've been through it. I, I know what it's like to, to nearly lose your life.
3: Sam, do you think that the eating disorder was perhaps not picked up because you have this physical condition and it was maybe easier for people to just put it down to that than to consider that you might have a mental health problem that people don't really understand
0: anyway? Absolutely. I'm sure that was partly the the reason. I think, you know, if you're type one diabetic, one of the criteria for for being diagnosed is a loss of weight. And certainly that was one of the barometers that I think many of the healthcare professionals that I was surrounded with perhaps assume that i was i was struggling with i was just a diabetic eventually i received the support that i needed but my diabetes certainly didn't help in it was a case of for me personally one of the principal reasons i didn't seek support was i was why i'd be misunderstood
2: and and when you did
0: seek support
2: in what form did it come how how did it how did you get help
0: so in the end i went to the the local eating disorder service in london i seek support from the nhs it, was, it, it worked. Um, you know at first, it worked. It was difficult for them to understand what my diagnosis could be, um, and it took a while for that diagnosis to come. but when it did, I was helped along the way, and I was able to make a fairly prompt recovery from the age of 16. I was glad to, to be in that situation, to be in that environment, because there were, there were many good things about the NHS. there are many good things that work about the service. It's not a case of of blaming any one individual, but it's the system, I think, which I think let me down and let many other diabetics down.
3: The treatment continued, didn't it, Sam? You you, you actually ended up in hospital eventually. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Yeah, I did. I ended up in Eating Disorders Psychiatrics Unit. That was very tough. I know that the care professionals at, at the hospital that I was in, I can't speak for everyone, but I know that they found it very difficult to manage my diabetes, certainly with all the the mechanics, the machinery um and it It was a case of of me having to to take ownership of that um which was was rather ironic in a way because of course that's kind of what you don't want in a certain environment like a eating disorders unit, you want to be able to to give control to those who are there to, to support you, to help you, to allow you to, to make that recovery.
3: And in a way, that's what made you become unwell in the first place. So it's it's madness that there there isn't kind of someone to take ownership of that for you while you're recovering.
0: Absolutely. No, there, there, was, there was no one there. Um, and the um, belief was, I think, that I was attempting to control my insulin, to control my weight. Uh, and that wasn't the case. You know, I have a lot of sympathy for that view, because I think it's not uncommon. But for me, it wasn't the case, and I think it's really important to take a step back and to really think about the patient and, and their needs, and not only their needs, but also who they are as, as people and, and where they come from and and what defines their illness. And I don't think we're very good at that, particularly in, in recent times where we you know have upward of 300,000 men now suffering with eating disorders who haven't come forward. That's outrageous, and I think the principal reason for that is that we're just a bit embarrassed because... You know, who knows what people are going to say about us. Misdiagnosis, as we all know, can be incredibly scary.
2: I know from talking to Eve about eating disorders, and Eve has written a lot about her journey with an eating disorder, that recovery is not a linear process. How are you now? Do you feel you've been able to stop looking at that graph
0: and judging yourself for the shape of that graph? I do. I'm, I'm much improved. I don't see the graph in the same light, and that's uh, you know hindsight is, is a wonderful thing, but it's certainly changed over time. My, my attitudes have changed, which I'm glad for. But the graph is still there. You know, I was speaking to Eve yesterday, and and I you know I had my phone out, and you know my notifications were, were popping up, and, and some of them were my blood sugar. So, you know, I was acutely aware of, of what my blood sugar was and what I needed to do, and that that actually you know as soon as the interview was over, I needed to do something. I needed to give some more insulin so that I could have a a decent lunch. And so, you know, tracking is not, for me, certainly from my experience has never been helpful. It's been helpful to monitor, to avoiding the worst outcome. But in terms of day-to-day living, it's had the opposite effects. It's incredibly unfreeing.
2: I know that it's become almost a trend to wear these. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, Sam, but there's a diet. Eve did a piece about it quite recently. Uh, but I see people in the gym wearing these things. Monitoring your blood sugars It's become a trend, hasn't it, for healthy people who have no condition that they need to control. Well the blood
3: sugar diet in general has become kind of a, you know, the diet of the eating plan of the moment. There's been several popular books in the last Mm. couple of years that seem to focus on controlling your blood sugars as this kind of magic bullet to weight loss. Does that
0: worry you, Sam? Yeah, deeply concerning. I think for me, it's a funny way to think because it feels so ignorant and so devoid of any thought. If we go down that track, it could be deadly. I say that because I know the effect that numbers and tracking has had on my life. It's prevented many awful situations from materializing. But it's also cost me a lot of my life and a lot of the life of the people that I love. And so my response to that is you're asking for trouble. We have more eating disorders diagnosed than ever before. And if we're asking people to wear CGMs, for example, just out of a kind of general interest or intrigue, then I think people are are missing the point. I mean, CGMs are there for a reason. You know, if I had a choice not to wear a a machine on my skin that checked my blood sugar every four minutes, I'd go for it. You wouldn't choose to be ill, would you? That's my, my attitude.
3: Absolutely. Well, Sam, thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing all of that and for your honesty. We really appreciate it.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you.
3: Have to say, I find this all fascinating because there's this idea that eating for people with eating disorders is like winning a game, and it does remind me of when I first became unwell. That a lot of people assumed it was because I was desperate to lose weight, but actually, I've always been thin. It was never about body image for me, really. It was like eating correctly. It was. It started off as as a plan, as a focus, as a control, and then. I started losing weight and I thought, oh, this is quite good. I mean, for Sam, weight loss wasn't anything to do with him. And I think that's possibly to do with gender. But he speaks about his eating disorder as this sort of, you know, like winning and I find mm. that so fascinating.
2: Well, you've always said that eating disorders are very multifactorial, but mm. a big part of it is personality type. Mm. Uh, and that, that specifically with anorexia, you say that it's a it's a certain kind of goal-orientated, quite alpha personality. Perfectionistic. Perfectionistic, that's it. Mm.
3: And that does sort of marry up with type 1 diabetes, doesn't it? Because there's this pressure to eat perfectly in order to keep your blood sugars perfect. And also you're looking at that graph all of the time. So you have a metric to measure it by.
2: And if you're that kind of person that is perfectionistic Mm. and you also have this goal thrust upon you, Mm. then that's going to start to create the factors that raise the risk, isn't it?
3: Absolutely. And it's so interesting how food can very quickly become this separate objective thing that you are so desperate to control. And I really feel it could be anything. Well, next
2: you've got Professor Partha Carr on the phone. Partha is the NHS's clinical lead mm-hmm. for type 1 diabetes.
3: Yes. And Partha is becoming concerned about this rise in disordered eating in some of his patients. Partha, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I'm interested to know what effect you think that the increased use of tech in diabetes care has had on this supposed rise in in younger people developing eating disorders related to their management of their condition?
1: Yeah, so technology can always be a double-edged sword. It's very important that we pick the right person, we analyse the person about what technology can do, because it's showing an insight as to where your glucose levels are, the ups and downs. And in some people with lots of things on their plate, it could be uh, seen as something where you get more worried. You look at issues and you start thinking, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And then you have all the social media pressures along with it, because, you know, as ever, people will always share their best results. And it makes you think maybe I'm not doing good enough. So it's very important that even though technology is going to be and it's continued to be a standard part of type one diabetes care, these things are always kept in mind. So, so Partha, are you seeing young
2: people developing these kind of obsessional control issues that they want to keep their
1: blood sugar as flat as possible? And they do that by stopping eating, basically. So I think what you see is that this is where we talk about the concepts of time and range, because there is this narrative built up. And if you ask a lot of your patients, some of it is done by us as healthcare professionals over the years, because if you ask somebody with diabetes, where do you think your blood sugar should be? They say, well, four and seven? And you go like, what? how how often? And they say all the time. And I think trying to put across that that's not actually humanly possible unless you stop eating. It's one of those things where you have those discussions and to your question, yes, of course, that's where the consultations are important to say, don't put yourself in a situation that you stopped eating to try and get there because you're trying to get to numbers which are not really beneficial for you in the long run. There is no evidence for that. But as I said, part of the fault lies with us as clinicians because we have created the narrative over the years. So, so do you think that there has specifically been something going wrong with those
2: consultations? Do, are there things that doctors are said to say as standard or, you know, the training advises that, that, that perhaps they shouldn't say to teenagers specifically who have type 1
1: diabetes? oh, there's a wider, wider mess around it, because we developed this whole thing called language matters, which sounds very, you know, politically correct. It isn't. It's about just how you interact with somebody with diabetes. And you're absolutely right. A lot of it is about training, how you interact with people with diabetes. You know, unless you move away from that whole, uh, you know, I've got to pass you my judgment as to how your diabetes should be better, unless you move away from that. And I was recently at a conference where I said exactly the word is that It's a peek into people's lives, right? Because that's what they're allowing you with those glucose levels. Now, If you're going to use that to judge them, not only that relationship is broken, you're also probably causing harm. So I think that's important that that training is inculcated in all of us, that we are saying, no, 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 these numbers are to guide you in the right way. The too tight is not too good, too wide is not too good, but what can we do to
2: help you? So that's quite important. As doctors, you've never had this much insight into your patients' levels. And I guess you guys have got to catch up with having that much insight. Oh,
1: 100%. 100%. I think there's a big learning piece for us as clinicians, because in the past, we would have had, what, three or four spot checks in a day by pricking their fingers. It's a bit like, I mean, I always use the analogy, that's a bit like watching Usain Bolt run, but with just four pictures of him running. You have no idea how fast he is. But this is now like a video. You can see him. So I think it's about that learning to go like, actually, it's OK to have that sort of, you know, waves and sometimes be high, sometimes be low. So I think there's a big learning piece. And it's not just this technology. We're not just talking with sensors. Think about what else has now come through. We've got connected pens. We've got connected systems. So it's like a whole range of stuff. You're sitting there in a clinic and you can, as I said, it's genuinely a peek into their lives. So that training, it has to be on our side as well.
3: Partha, do you think there's something to be said here about you were talking about the training of professionals that traditionally the physical health and the mental health world have been quite separate? And do you think that maybe there's there's a kind of lack of communication there between the two areas of medicine that perhaps diabetes consultants are so focused on the physical that maybe, you know, they're not considering what could go wrong in terms of mental health?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the problem with medical schools and how we have all come through, right? It's got to be X, you know, two plus two is always got to be four. And if it's not, then it's not right. And I think separating the mental health from something like diabetes or any chronic disease is just silly because y- you can only do so much. So we have this debate all the time about oh, we should have psychologists everywhere. And I always push back saying, well, yes, but at the same time, you probably need clinicians to do a lot of that role where you're having those conversations with. People, and we recently did a survey, and the most ironic thing was that most patients said that their first opening line from a specialist tends to be, how is your diabetes, rather than how are you? And I think that's a big, big shift of culture you need to get to that space where you're just saying, look, look, maybe this consultation, we're not going to talk about your sugars at all. Till you do that, you can't build a relationship and you can't change things.
3: And I was quite shocked to learn that patients who have type 1 diabetes are treated as normal eating disorder patients and therefore there aren't any diabetes specialists there to help them manage their condition.
1: Yeah, in most places, that's the problem. So we are trying to build these sort of little centres with type 1 diabetes specific. You've got to have people trained in it. So at the moment, we're trying to roll it out. But absolutely, if you put it in the general pot without understanding of what impact those glucose levels are having, then you don't have a specialist doing that. And so that's very important. You have these services.
2: Well, Partha, thank you very much for finding some time to talk to us as ever. It's been a pleasure.
1: Pleasure. Thank you.
2: Yeah, all roots lead back to low carb, don't they? Oh, low
3: carb. Do we have to get into it again? <laughs> I mean, what,
2: Sugar sticks. what about a nice bowl of pasta? Come on.
3: Whatever happened to a nice bowl of pasta? I
2: have them all the time.
3: Me too, and they're Excellent. Um, But no, I mean, this is an incredibly serious topic, obviously. And I'm really fascinated by it because I think that so... Well, it's new, isn't it? It's new, but it also, for me, it's it's incredibly relatable, obviously. But also I think it really illustrates what I think eating disorders are at their heart, which is this desire to control something about one's life whatever it may be and it's interesting how it just so happens that this is a physical thing where there's quite obvious parallels and overlaps but i imagine that having a chronic illness that's completely out of your control gives you a desperate need to want to focus on something and cling to something that you can make a difference to
2: but the the role that the doctor plays in that that's Mm. that's what's so interesting that the doctor has a huge influence on that message of you must control.
3: I was speaking to an eating disorders doctor today who works in a specialist diabetes clinic and she said that patients often tell her that going to see their diabetes consultant is like sitting in with the headmaster or headmistress and that they are they feel very much like they're going to get a slap on the wrist or they're mm. going to get a gold star and it's all about have you achieved good glycemic control this month or not and so there is this sort of pressure to perform and to do well.
2: I do not know which doctor my ex was seeing but he used to just say I can eat whatever I like. <laughs> but his diabetic dietitian mm. said you can eat what you like as long as you inject and so he did.
3: Yeah, I wonder if also it's kind of this culture of moving away from medicine and we should all, you know, rub leaves on ourselves instead of taking the medication we need and 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 maybe there's an idea that The less insulin you have to use, the better. If you can control it by not using a medication, then that's better.
2: Oh, my God, there was that insane bloke, wasn't there? They did some kind of run round the country or something and didn't eat anything. Who were they, those mental cases? I don't know. They're
3: all mad. (laughs) They're all mad. I
2: mean, like, literally... Let's go on a marathon without eating. But isn't or, or do that they interesting that the, the
3: desire yeah, raw steak raw the de, steak. the desire to show that you can control your health by doing magic is or just is, eating raw steak or eating raw steak, which is the I, same.
2: Honestly, I, I am absolutely horrified yet gripped. And they all look so unwell anyway. God, they're all you know scrawny and
3: and also they look like sexy. terrible company. Imagine. Exactly.
2: Imagine sitting next Imagine to someone. going on a date with them. Exactly, just eating organ meat. <laughs> with that, I think that's all we have time for. But you can read all about this and all the latest health news in this weekend's Mail on Sunday, which you can consume in newspaper format on mailplus.co.uk or on the Mail app.
3: We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then.
2: Goodbye.